I want to speak to you this morning upon this subject, the God of Israel and the Israel of God. My text you will find in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 26, 27, 28, and 29. If you turn with me to the first verse of this chapter, you will find that this chapter is a benediction. It is a song of thanksgiving and a psalm of blessing. Moses lived for 120 years. His life was divided into three periods of 40 years each. 40 years he was in Pharaoh's house. 40 years he was in the backside of the desert. 40 years he was leading the people from bondage to the borders of the promised land. It is interesting to note in any study of Moses' life how these periods ended. The end of each period has deep spiritual significance. How did the first period end? It ended when Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It ended with clean-cut separation from the world and from a worldly way of living, a worldly way of acting, and a worldly way of thinking. Christian service starts when we have done with the world and with the sins and pleasures and privileges that this sinful world affords. That does not mean that the Christian should be an isolationist. Isolationism is not the doctrine of the Bible. Separation is the doctrine of the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church, in its twisted theology, practices isolationism. The isolationism of monasticism. The isolationism of a priesthood that cannot marry. The isolation of a system that would shut off God's church from the rest of the world. That is not scriptural theology, but it is a perverted, idolatrous philosophy. The Christian is to be separate from the world, but he's to use the world and not abuse it, says the book, for the fashion of this world passeth away. Secondly, would you notice how the second period of Moses' life in him, for forty years he was meditating the backside of the desert, but his meditations ended at the burning bush when God manifested himself to a servant. And there must be a manifestation of God in the life before Christian service can be engaged upon. And having stood on holy ground, having been commissioned by the Jehovah of hosts, he went down into Egypt to do his God-ordained task of delivering those who were under the yoke of slavery. Now, forty years of triumph, 
Forty years of trials, forty years of heartbreaks and heartaches with a rebellious people have concluded. And Moses stands in the borders of the land that he cannot enter because of his own sin. But he ends his day of service with a song. And as the sun sets upon the day of the great man of God's service, there is blessing upon his lips, and praises rise from his inmost soul, and he blesses the tribes of Israel. And having concluded his blessing, he finishes with these verses. There are some things in these verses I want to specially underline for you. First of all, we have Israel's deity, the God whom the people of Israel worship. He's described in these words, There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven is thy help, and in his excellency on the sky. We want to have a look at Israel's deity or Israel's God. Secondly, I want you to notice Israel's description here. There is a word here used of Israel, Jeshurun, a very important word, a special title designating the children of Israel. We want to have a look at Israel's description. Then in verse 27, you have Israel's defense. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And then if you go farther with me in these verses, you have Israel's destiny, the future of Israel. What is it? It's outlined here in a message of hope, in a message of faith, in a message of victory, in a message, my friend, of God's great provision for God's chosen people. So we want to look at these things concerning the God of Israel and the Israel of God. There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, Israel's deity. Israel knew that God, the God Jehovah, was the only and the true God. For 400 years the children of Israel had lived in a land for idolatry abundant. The land where the pantheon, the many gods, was the shrine of the people, the shrine of national worship in Egypt. And Israel had proof positive that the gods of Egypt were vain. They had eyes, but they could not see. Ears, but they could not hear. Hands, but they could not deliver those poor proselytes. And those poor worshippers who came before their shrine. And one day God set about the demolishing of the gods of Egypt. And every plague that fell in Egypt was a direct attack upon the gods of the Egyptians. They worshipped the river Nile. But God turned the living stream of the Nile waters into a fountain of blood. God confounded their worship of the river. And every plague 
of Egypt was a direct stroke at the gods of the Egyptians. And all the sorceries of Jambres and Timis, the wizards of Egypt who withstood Moses to the face, couldn't alter the fact that before Israel's eyes there was a demonstration that God only was the Lord and there is none else. Did I say that God has proved himself to his people? And we believe that God is this morning. Many millions of idolaters may go and grovel in the dust before their man-made shrines and man-made altars and man-constructed gods and goddesses. But we as the people of God, we come to worship the only true and living God. He is not worshipped by man's hands as though he needed anything. And we do not come, my friend, to bow before a crucifix or to grovel before an image. We do not come this morning to use the bubbles of idolatry. We do not come this morning to go through the man-manufactured rituals of the system of the people antichrist. Thank God, those that worship God, worship Him in spirit and in truth. The God that we believe in is Israel's God. The God who proved Himself to be the only true and living God. I see in the church of Jesus Christ two policies being pursued. There is a policy of dependence upon man. As if the success of the church Depended on man's ingenuity, and man's plannings, and man's schemes, and man's oratory, and man's scholarship, and man's attainments, and many churches striving after worldly success depend absolutely on man. That policy is bound to fail. The church who depends on the arm of the flesh is doomed to abysmal failure. And we see this poison in the very stream of the evangelical movements of our land. Churches that once knew the power and blessing of heaven today have become a wilderness. And their views have been forsaken. And the pulpit once a place of power has become a place of paralysis and powerlessness. Why? Because they depended upon the organization. They depended upon the man. They depended upon the establishment. They were more interested in party programs than in the preaching of the everlasting gospel of our God. There is another policy in the church, the true policy, to depend on the blessing of heaven. This church stands as a testimony to the fact that God still blesses his people. This church stands as a living monument to the fact that there's a God who hears the prayers of his people. This church stands as a testimony that the God who has the silver and the gold and the cattle and a thousand hills still supplies the needs of his people. Israel's God is the true and living God. I want you to look with me at verse 26. 
And you will find that there is one thing emphasized about the God of Jeshurun. And it is his absolute sovereignty that he's above it all, that he reigns above the affairs of man. It says in this text, it says he rides upon the heavens and his excellency in the sky. He's above all the things of earth. He's above all the schemes of earth, all the dynasties of earth. All the thrones of earth, all the potentates of earth, far above all is my Savior enthroned. He's above it all. He's in absolute control. You may think the world has gone out of control, but overruling satanic purposes and overruling sinful plans, and overruling the world's systems of evil, and the principalities and powers, and the potentates of hell. Praise God, Jesus reigns. He'll bring all things to a successful conclusion. The church of Christ is not going to perish. The church of Christ is going to triumph. Truth is not going to be buried forever in the cover. Truth is going to rise and put on the beautiful garments of resurrection. And God, who has made his church mighty, will make her mightier yet in his sovereign will and plan. Let us not sit down and put on sackcloth and say the cause is lost and our heritage is gone. But let us rise like them and fill the walls of Jerusalem. And draw the sword against the enemies. And let the sword never go back to the scabbard until God makes his church a peace and a blessing among the sons of men. God is sovereign. Israel's God. I want you to notice Israel's description. She is described here as Jeshurun. It means the darling of uprightness. It is a term of love. It is a descriptive title of one upon whom God has set his heart. And I am glad that the great heart of God beats affectionately and lovingly for his people today. Let me tell you, friends, God understands your heartache. Last night, I stood in a bereaved home. I looked upon the cold corpse of a father. I saw the tears run down the cheek, and I wept with those that wept. But let me tell you, friend, God understands. The church of Jesus Christ and the people of God are upon his heart. He's not going to forsake us. You say, preacher, this week I've been down in the valley. I walked by a road that I never walked before, and by a path that I have never traversed before. That's true. But if you look closely at the road, you'll see that it's marked with the footprints of Jesus. There is not a pain that rends the human heart, but the man of sorrows hath a part. And he describes Israel in this term of endearment. 
this term of warm affection. He says, I love you. I love you with an everlasting love. I have set my affection upon you. You are mine. Can we respond today in the words of the spouse and say, I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine? May God help us to see that his love for his church is an everlasting love. We have in this verse Israel's defense. Look at it. It's twofold. The eternal God is thy refuge. What use is a refuge if you haven't the power to flee to it? What use is a refuge if you haven't the power to go in through its great door and to be buttressed and enclosed and encompassed with its great walls? And there are some of us at times, and the pressures are so great, and the struggle is so terrible, and the conflict is so fierce, and we haven't even the strength to run to the refuge. But praise God, through it all, the everlasting arms are underneath. Yes, sir. When you have strength enough to pray, His everlasting arms are underneath you. When you have strength enough to raise the standard and the flag, you say, preacher, I can't even flee to that refuge. I'm so weary and tired with life's fever and life's struggle. Praise God underneath. Are the everlasting arms of your fall, you're going to fall into his arms. I heard, listened once or heard once a great prayer. A man prayed in a graveside. And he said, thy servant has fallen. And we're leaving the body in the cold earth. But underneath are the everlasting arms. The very bodies of God's people are wrapped in slumber laid on the everlasting arms. And God one day will awaken that body and remarry the everlasting spirit to a body made like unto Christ's glorious body. And then shall we enter into the kingdom of God, which is an everlasting kingdom ordered in all things and eternally sure. Israel's defense. Have you got any cares this morning? Hand them to the Lord. You know, sometimes we're on the pinnacle, the pinnacle of blessing. It's a dangerous place to be if we're not confident that the everlasting arms are with us. Sometimes we're in the pinnacle of Christian service. It's a dangerous place to be if we're not confident that underneath are the everlasting arms. Sometimes we go down into the valley. I was sitting in my room the other day and a dear woman came into the room to take counsel with me. She had a great problem. She was heartbroken. And she said to me, Mr. Paisley, I'm sure you're never depressed. I'm sure you're never filled with doubts. I said, what do you take me for, a superman? I said, if you knew all the doubts I have, if you knew all the depressions I have, if you knew all the sorrows that I have to carry, you would be depressed too. She says, then you have been depressed. I said, certainly. You have been pressurized. I said, said certainly. Who could carry the cares of this congregation and this work and not know the pressures of the enemy and the temptations of leadership? 
But I said, I've proved something, that I have to cast all my care on God, for God cares for me. And we knelt down together, and that dear woman just cast her burden upon the Lord. Underneath are the everlasting arms, never forget. And if the everlasting arms of God are underneath it, and if around about us is the eternal God, our refuge, thank God we're going to make the city of God. There's no doubt about it. I cannot understand some of my well-meaning brethren who think that God's people are not eternally secure. I cannot understand why they think that it's their hold on God and not God's hold on them that will bring them to the desired heaven. When I come to the busy roadway and I have my boys with me, they put their tiny hands in my hand. And we go across the road together. It's not their tiny little grasp in their father's hand that gets them over, is it? But it's my grasp of their hand that gets them safe to the other side. It's not my tiny fickle hold on God that's going to bring me to heaven. It's God's eternal hold on me. God is in his hand. It's well with her soul. Though Satan should buffet, though sorrow should come, though sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. I'm not the prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I know before me and my ministry there's going to be troubles. Bonds and afflictions abide me. If I had known what was going to happen last year, I would have stood in terror at the beginning of 1969. But God gives you grace for every day. He'll provide for you. I was in prison this morning ministering to some man at 9 o'clock. I go there at 9 o'clock every morning, every Sunday morning. As I was going out, the warder who was there with us this morning, he was one of the men that warded me. And I said to him, you're not taking me to the cell this morning. I'm going the other way. I've been in the prison cell, friend. I've sat there in the the loneliness. But I proved that the eternal God was my refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. You can go away this morning knowing that God is your defense. Last of all, there's... Israel's destiny. If someone could tell you exactly what's going to happen, you'd go to that person and you would say, Oh, please tell me. I don't know what's going to happen particularly, but I know what's going to happen in general outline. My future is all secure in the Father's hand. Would you read these verses? It says that the enemy shall be destroyed, and God will destroy the enemies of his church. Around these walls are the busts of men that stood the hottest fire. Read their brief biographies and remember this, that God delivered them. Even it meant the stake and the faggot and the fire and the tortures of Rome's inquisition. God didn't forsake them.
God's going to deliver His people. What's before me? A great deliverance. What's before me? Look at it at again. Safety, Israel shall dwell alone. What's before me? The blessings of heaven. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Praise God, there's honey in the rock for you, my brother, this morning. There's a good land before us, a land flowing with milk and honey. What's before us this morning? The heavens shall drop down to happy of all Israel, who is like unto thee, O people, saved by the Lord. There's no people like the people of God. There's no destiny like the destiny of God's people. There's no security like the security of God's Israel. Are you numbered in that great company? Have you been born of the Spirit of God? Are you washed in the blood of Christ? Are you justified freely by His grace? If not, thank God this very day, this experience can be yours. Let us not fear what's going to happen in coming days. Let's place our trust in the Lord of heaven. Let us know that we are the Israel of God. And there is a God in Israel. He's a God that answers by fire. I was walking round these grounds the other day with Pastor Mullen. And we came to the notice board of the church. And he said, Ian, you know, there's a juniper tree. And we walked a little farther and he said, there's another juniper tree. I said, I'm going to give orders to have those two trees cut down. For I said, I don't want to sit like Elijah under the juniper tree. Remember old Elijah sat down under the juniper tree? He did. Do you know there was a day when Elijah ran before Ahab? But the next day he was running away from Ahab's wife. Of course, when a woman comes into it, you could have sympathy, couldn't you? Good. Especially a painted doll like Jezebel. She had enough paint to paint the battleship and enough powder to blow it up after it was painted. Poor old Elijah. And friend, we're just the same. We'll have our days when we'll sit down under the juniper tree. But God doesn't change. God will be the same. Remember the sameness of God as we get this into your heart. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that doctrine will put strength to your arm, courage to your soul, and fortitude to your feet.